0: Friday night, I was out for dinner with my wife and another family, and we were seated very close to the table next to us, almost like elbow room. The family next to us was uh, consisted of a 12-year-old daughter and her mom. And on multiple occasions throughout the evening, they, I think, overheard our conversation and had some comments. It was friendly and fun, and uh, we had, it sounded like we had some common interests. And after we paid for our check, uh, she asked if... I was a pastor. We were pastors, which led to a long conversation about her recent conversion to Mormonism. She told kind of a brief story of how she was a sex addict, having two children with two different men, and really had fallen into trapped into this lifestyle. And she shared uh, in a brief in a brief testimony of. How it wasn't until she had two Mormon missionaries that came to her door and really showed her how to be freed from this problem that to her life. And so we asked her, what was your background? She said, well, I grew up Baptist. And if you don't know this, uh, a lot of Baptists are converted to being Mormon. And so she said that, so we asked her, what was your experience like struggling with this? She said she had struggled with it in her entire childhood. And what, what was it like? in the Baptist world, and she said that when she would you know, explain her frustrations or her struggles, and especially when she got pregnant for the first time, she didn't receive help or uh, encouragement. She basically was told she didn't deserve to have that baby and encouraged to give it away. So in the Mormon religion, they offered Jesus as the relief to her addiction. And so she began to tell us about how She had been released from this trap. Jesus for her is not necessarily her savior from her sins. She would of course acknowledge that. But what she kept talking about over and over and over again was how Jesus was her savior from her addiction. She was very proud to say that she had just become temple worthy. And If you don't know anything about Mormonism that's a big deal. Not very many people are temple worthy. There's a lot that's required to be temple worthy. You can just google that sometime. But it's It's quite a bit. Not only that, you have to be up on your tithe. You have to give up a a certain amount of money to be temple worthy. And one of those is when they ask you the question, when the prophet or whoever it is that they're working with at the moment, their elder asks them the question, are you celibate? She said, I've been very proud to say for two years I have been celibate. So she showed us her little temple worthy pass, which I've always heard about. I've never seen one. So it was interesting to see it. But for many in the world... Jesus is only presented as a fix to their temporal problem. And so she would wholeheartedly say that she loves Jesus and she loves her religion because of what it's done for her, because of what it's offered for her. So when you hear the, the advertisement put out there, and this I've been looking at, at church advertisements recently just because I'm curious. We're a new church and we're letting people know who we are. And as I look at them, you hear stories, if you struggle with your marriage, your job, addiction, anxiety, depression, weight loss. Jesus wants to help you. Follow Him and He will make your life better. That's, that's the advertisement. What breaks my heart is that what is being offered is far less than what Jesus truly is. He isn't a life improvement program. He isn't a motivational story. He isn't a good advice for life's journey he is God. And He saves sinners, as Byron said this morning, from the Father's wrath. He takes them from death to life. He transforms them into living beings. He gives them eternal hope, not just temporal relief. As it relates to our passage tonight, Jesus is faced with a woman who's found herself in the same situation as this young girl was in Friday night that I had dinner next to. Five, this, this, this woman in John 4, five, male, uh, five failed marriages, and now in a sixth relationship. The amount of disappointment and heartache she must have felt in her life. Maybe there was no father in her life. We don't know. Maybe she has fallen into the trap of that sexuality and marriage is something that it's not. And she keeps trying to refill something in her life. She has made the same mistake repeatedly. You think after the third or the fourth time, but now she's on number six. Last week we looked at the story from the perspective of Jesus. Why is it that Jesus found himself at this well? Why this story? And our conclusion was is that the gospel is the great equalizer. Nicodemus, who was seen as holy and righteous in the culture, who was a teacher amongst the Jews, was in equal need of the gospel as the woman at the well. And Jesus was willing to give the gospel to Nicodemus as much as he was to the woman at the well. <clears throat> but now we're going to look at it from her eyes. and John helps us see it from her perspective. And so we are going to look at some details in a little bit, same details in a little bit different way. What she receives from Christ as ones whose life is shattered and lives a life full of rejection. That's what we look at. Now it's clear from this story and the parable of the Good Samaritan that Samaritans were hated by Jews. The question is why? We're going to look at this a little bit more. For the sake of time, I'm going to do a real quick brief overview, give you some extra information that I didn't give you last week. But this is the animosity between the the, the reason for it. There was actually good reason for the Jews to be upset at the Samaritans. Now, their anger went because they're sinners as we are. Their anger probably went a little bit above that which it should have been, like when someone is driving irresponsibly, in my opinion, and my anger may go a little higher than what's necessary at times. I just wish my horn was louder. But there was a direct command from God to the children of Israel that they were not to intermarry with any other nation, with any other um, nation. Groups of people. And this is why. He says in Deuteronomy 7.3, "...you shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons, or taking their daughters for your daughters, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you, and he would destroy you quickly." Well, that's a perfect description of exactly what happened. They got sent into captivity and while into captivity, they were separated and you have this group of people who ended up near the Assyrians who were in Samaria and they started to intermarry with each other. The very thing that God told them not to do. In the book of Nehemiah, chapter 6, there's a story in there where you have uh, the Samaritans who want to help with the building of the temple. Of course, they are now... A, a broken race, they are a dirty race, they are a defiled race because they have intermarried with another religion, which, of course, the Assyrians did not see Yahweh as the one and true God. So the, the Jews said, no, you can't help us. And that, of course, made the Samaritans very angry. So they decided to then try and stop the building of the temple, which there's a whole story in that. But they also received into their community the outlaws and the ex, those who were excommunicated from the Jews. And so Samaria, Samaria became this place where if you got booted because you were disobedient in the in the Israelite community, just go to the Samaritans; they'd bring you in. And so there was this continued compounding anger. One, you've broke God's law; you are you are now filthy; you are now unclean; you're an unclean race. Number two, you are you are um, you have in, in our history you have caused great conflict. We're trying to build a temple, so they said, "Forget you; we're going to build our own temple." And on top of that, the people that were outcast and punishing, you're receiving. Which is just continuing to make them angry. So really what they started was what we would call a cult. What's the definition of a cult? A cult starts at the baseline of something that's true, the Bible. And then they change it, they alter it. So they believed in the first five books of the law, but they rejected everything else. And they believed that true worship was in Mount Gerizim and not on Mount Zion. And so this interaction ends up coming in. But there's is, there is so much animosity between them. And rightfully so. There were some laws given about rejecting those who had rejected the commandments of God. But they took it to a level that was beyond what was required. So the Jews considered the people of the city of Samaria to be unclean. And you should avoid unclean people like you would avoid dead people. A dead body. And there was... Uh, this concern that if you go through the city and you touch uh, one of them or you, touch, or you drink after one of them or out of their pots, that you would be defiled. And if you'd be defiled, the process of becoming ceremonially cleansed was a huge process. Not only shaming, because you should have been more careful than to defile yourself. Now the Gentiles, they believed the Gentiles were generally there at times they were unclean, depending on what was going on. But they considered the Samaritans to be unclean all of the time. So you have to really, so what would happen is, if you, were going from, uh, if you were going from Judea to Galilee, you'd have to go through Samaria. It's just kind of how it works. Like if you're going from Columbia to Nashville, you're going to have to go through Spring Hill, right? Well, they would much rather go three days on a boat ride around so they wouldn't have to go through the city. Now, in my opinion, you have to really hate someone to take a two-day journey and make it a five-day journey just so you can avoid them. I mean, that is a lot of hate, in my opinion. So, that's exactly what's going on. So, when Jesus says he's going through Samaria, there's a reason for it. So, looking at John 4, I wanted to point out the amount of details that John shares with uh, with us, just, just giving us kind of really the color of the reality of what's going on here. And he's done this multiple times, but we're going to kind of taste and smell and feel everything about this interaction and every single detail is to help us see with our own eyes if, if, as if we were there. So going back to verse 4, uh, again, there's debate on what John 4.4 4 means, but he says he had to pass through Samaria. I think God in his sovereignty knew very well why he had to go through the city because he had an appointment with a woman there that was going to become one of his evangelists. And so this, this phrase, I think, is helpful in that. The city... Um, uh, we already talked about that. So let's read John 4.5. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, are asking for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. That's interesting, John had to throw that detail in there, just as the gospel would grow in time. Maybe people would forget about the conflict between the two of them. So John reveals some vital details that provide important insights to this story. And what we're going to look at is that the details about this woman. Now there are some already. You have Jesus who's already been on a two day journey. He's gone up to Samaria. He's walked through the desert. And it says that he's tired. And he sits. And he's thirsty. Just John giving us the picture. The, the, the humanity of Jesus. Of course this woman doesn't think anything about it. When she walks up and sees Jesus. She just thinks he's a Jew. Who's tired clearly and is wanting a drink. So she doesn't look at him. And all of a sudden there's a halo Above his head, and angels are singing. She sees him as a man, just as a man. But here's the details about the woman that John gives us that are important. First of all, he says that the time that Jesus is there, about the sixth hour, we know that to be about noon, about in the middle of the day. It's hot. And this woman that's coming, she's coming alone. Now, normally, from what we see from culture, if you read from Josephus and other areas of culture, that women would not do that, they would go together either in the mornings. And it was a time of fellowship. They would go and get their water, or they would do it in the evenings. But you would never go during the most hot part of the day. No one wants to be out during that time of the day. And so she went out by herself. Why would she come, coming out the hottest point of the day? Well, what we learn later on in the story is very clear why. Because she has a reputation. She doesn't want to be around other people. She, at as, as this point of, as I mentioned earlier, has had five husbands in any culture. I don't care what culture you're in. Even in modern day culture, that seems extreme. Five marriages. I guess unless you're in Hollywood. It's clear something within her can't be satisfied. What would lead someone to pursue so much pain and confusion? I'm sure is a painful story to hear. But I promise you, she didn't wake up one morning as a teenager and think to herself, I want to have as many failed relationships as I possibly can. That wasn't her ambition. And each new husband was an attempt to reset the last failure. Let's try this again. What she thought was love and satisfaction was only failure, and she was completely delusional. Of course, Jesus knows this about her. He's already demonstrated that he knows all things. The very reason he had to come to the city is to sit at the well, And to meet this desperate woman. Now, back to our text, this passage is a testimony, really, to women. An entire chapter given to a woman's interaction with Jesus. And an important interaction. Look at verse 7. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. And Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city. To buy food, Most likely at that time you would have a bag that you could lower down or some kind of a container to lower down into the well by a rope. Of course, his disciples clearly took this with them. But there are several shocking points to Jesus' question to the woman. You see, Jesus or Jews would never drink from a water pot from a Samaritan. It was even documented by the Jews and some rabbis that that would make you seem unclean. And so when Jesus asks for this, it's puzzling to the woman. Not only that, Jews, as I mentioned last week, would not speak to a woman in public. And this is why she responds in the way that she does. There's even some that would say it's not even worthy, and this is, this is how far the culture got, it's not even worthy for a man to speak to his wife in public. So verse 9, the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you a Jew asks for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria. For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God, and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Jesus grabs the woman's attention immediately and starts working on her heart. And I love how Jesus does this time and time again in the Gospels. Jesus never answers the woman's question. He, he did this in the opposite with Nicodemus. Nicodemus walks up and says, Hi, Jesus. And he goes, This is how you inherit eternal life. It's as if Jesus is unaware of the absurdity of the situation. He completely ignores her. Treats her as a normal human being. He treated her as he treated Nicodemus. He had a th- actual theological discussion with Nicodemus, as he's going to do with this woman, which was as far as a rabbi would never have a theological discussion with a woman in public, let alone a Samaritan. Because of this, Jesus pays no attention to the bitterness in her voice and ignores her question. How, how is it that you are having a conversation with me at this moment? And he moves right into what he planned or planted himself at the well to do. And Jesus wastes no no time. Asks her for a drink of water, which is, you know, very polite. I'm thirsty. I think he asked for the drink of water because he was genuinely thirsty. And then from that, continues the conversation. The gift of God is what he begins the conversation with. Now, this is the same story he has with Nicodemus. And both of them miss the illustration. Both of them miss the, the shadow of what Jesus is pointing to. With Nicodemus, it was rebirth. With her, it's living water. With this woman, look at verse eleven. The woman said to him, "Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock." So the woman, knowing that he is speaking, knowing that she is speaking to A Jewish rabbi, at least a Jew at the moment, enters into a theological question or debate with him, demonstrating her knowledge of her ancestry and of the Torah. She's very clear. She understands, according to Genesis and Exodus, that this land belongs to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the fathers. And now you're offering something that is better than what's here? And How is it that you're doing that? What makes you better? Now they believed, the Samaritans, that they would trace they their, their line all the way from Jacob. And that was important to them. And this was probably her attempt to kind of bolster their importance to Jesus. Yeah, we're, we're important people. This is Jacob's land. This is his well. And so we, we have some importance here. Her question also has a natural negative bent requiring the natural answer of no. You're not saying you're, you're greater than they are, right? He's surprised that a Jew would hit at being greater than a pig Jesus got in trouble for this all the time. How is it you were saying that you are greater than Abraham, our father? No good Jew would ever do that. No one is greater than they are. So how dare a stranger try to produce something greater than what this is here, this well that we have? Of course, Jesus ignores her attempts to create validity and goes back to his original statement. He then contrasts the water she believes in with living water. Look at verse 13. Jesus says to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whatever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. Jesus is offering her not a drink of water, but using the illustration and saying, I'm offering you eternal life. She finds herself in a desert where water is an important commodity surrounded by death constantly. Water is precious. The woman continues really to misunderstand the connection that's being made here. Jesus is offering her eternal life. But she really hasn't even made the connection of who, she, of who Jesus is. Now we will read in the next verse, that she only had selfish intentions and really missed the spiritual point that Jesus is making. So she's beginning to track with Him, but only in that, wait a minute, you're offering me water that doesn't run out? I'm liking this. As I mentioned before, many people come to Jesus in this way. Oh, wait, I'm, I'm liking the benefits that you're describing here. This is awesome. They approach Him as the fix to their physical needs. You know, the greatest... Need is not your relationship or work ethic, as we said before, but it's your standing before holy God. That's what he's revealing to her, but she's not seeing it yet. She sees that Jesus can meet the need of her cultural embarrassment. That's what she's beginning to realize. Wait a minute. If I never have to come to this well again, I never have to deal with people judging me. And I never have to come in the heat of the day. So yeah, where do I get this everlasting water that never runs out? I want some of that. See, her problem was not her failed marriages. Her problem is not how people see her. Her problem was how the Father sees her. You notice that Jesus doesn't get to the problem of her failed marriage until he absolutely needs to point out what she's missing. What does he offer her right from the beginning? You know, if you would have asked me for living water as a gift, I would have given it to you. He immediately approaches her need from the beginning. Not her cultural problem. Not her addiction, her eternal problem is what he deals with. So read her request in verse 15. When the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or what? Have to come here to draw water. Don't have to have public embarrassment anymore. John is showing us that she doesn't see Jesus as Savior, but really as a magician. She's about to meet the Messiah. And when she does, her life will be turned around and completely dumped upside down onto the ground. And this is what Jesus says to her in verse verse 16. Go, call your husband and come here. Which would have been a normal cultural statement. I'm talking to you in public. Go get your husband and we'll talk together. What this woman does next is natural to humanity. It's what we all do. We never want anyone to see who we truly are. An attempt to appear normal, she lies to Jesus. Verse 17. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have five husbands. And the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. Man, get the tone of the sarcasm there. You're right. You, said, you told the truth. But as a gentle shepherd, Jesus reveals the failure of her life. You see, she didn't see the need for the living water at the moment. And Jesus comes in and dumps everything upside down and says, Okay, let's, let's demonstrate what I'm trying to say here, what you need. Now, as we have seen already, she's avoiding the embarrassment of her life's choices by coming into the middle of the day to the well. We already seen that. John pointed that out in the middle of the day by herself. She has sought satisfaction and has failed miserably and now is dealing with it. Something clearly is deeply wrong with her view of love and satisfaction and shocked by her life being completely exposed by a stranger, you can only imagine, they're only a few seconds into the conversation and Jesus goes, I know everything about you. Everything. It's like being at Thanksgiving. You know, let me back up here. So what she's trying really hard to do is deflect this conversation off of her. I mean, we were talking about uh, good things like how... The Samaritans are legit. She wants Jesus to get into this heated debate because where she's about ready to take it is a very heated debate between Jews and Samaritans. It is like sitting at Thanksgiving dinner and if people are asking you personal questions you don't want to actually answer, all you need to do is, so, uh, you know, how is President Trump doing? Conversation gone, right? Especially if you have polarizing opinions. But I like to imagine the kind of tone she used when she makes the following statement. Look at verse 19. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. (laughs) You just gave details that no one would know unless they were a part of this town. And this is where she goes, Okay, I'm going to get this off of me Because I don't want to talk about me. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. But you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Do you ever share the gospel with somebody? And when you begin to talk about their standing before God, you start the subject of sin. All of a sudden, they want to talk about the reality of Noah and the ark or Jonah and the well, Right? You know, my struggle with the Bible is, not their sin, my struggle with the Bible is, I don't know about this whole Noah and the ark thing. I don't know if that really happened. Who wants their life exposed for everyone to see? Even to a stranger, no one wants that. How about I talk to your spouse, or to your parents, and I get the secrets that really no one else knows. The secrets only your spouse knows. The biggest failures of your life. And then I read them to the church. No one wants that. But that's what she's feeling. Here's who you are. There's nothing else to hide now. Some of you are already sick to your stomach. You're already going through, thinking about what is it that you have done at this moment. Man, if anyone ever found out about that. So do we blame this woman? No. let's uh, Look, aliens. No, no one blames her. Jesus ignores, once again her attempt to deflect the conversation about her and points out the error of her theology. Look at verse 21. Woman. Now, this is the same kind of endearment. This is not him being rude. Just like he used the same phrase to his mom. Woman. Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem where you worship the Father. And why does the location not matter? Because what did Jesus say when he emptied out the temple? You're going to tear this down and it will be rebuilt. Why? Because Jesus is the temple. The location of worship is going to be at very soon. It's not going to matter. 22. You worship what you don't know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. A Jew telling a Samaritan that they don't know what they're talking about. It's not flattering language. At this point, Jesus isn't winning her over by patting on the back and saying, Yeah, you know, we have some differences of opinion here. You know, we, we could agree to disagree. <laughs> it's not what he says. He says, You're wrong, and you don't even know what you're worshiping. You're completely wrong. Jesus isn't trying to win her over with unity because unity on this conversation, on this subject, isn't going to bring her what she truly needs. She isn't needing relief from her husband and her marriage, she needs relief from her soul. The truth is, the truth is what will set her free, and she doesn't believe in the truth. What he's saying to her, it is true that God is using the Jews to bring about salvation, not Samaritans. It is true that God's using the temple on Mount Zion, not your temple. But it's okay. I'm here, and I have a solution to what you need. I have a solution. Verse twenty-three. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, not a physical location or temple. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and truth. Jesus tells her it matters how She worships the Father. It does matter. What she believes is true worship is not worship. God desires people to worship Him in the power of the Spirit and the truth. So what He's saying to her is, you don't have that. It doesn't matter how passionate you are, how dedicated you are, how large your following is. God demands that worshiping Him, you have to worship in the way that He has commanded. So He straight tells her that. Jesus removes anything she was attempting to stand on. Everything she had embraced as truth had just been ripped out from underneath her. She's not a legitimate race. She doesn't have a legitimate temple. And secondly, he pointed out that only that one can only worship in truth, which is what this woman hasn't been from the beginning. She hasn't been truthful. She doesn't have the truth. She hasn't been truthful. She finally moves past her attempts to deflect, and this is what she asks I know, verse 25, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Again, I wonder what the look on her face would be at Jesus. She's, just, she's hearing something that is not normal. So the, the look, I'm only imagining this. But the look on her face is, she's beginning to wonder, are, are you, are you the Messiah? Because I know when He's coming, He's going to talk like this. So mystified by Jesus' words, the woman finally confessed her ignorance and said, and expressed her longing, I know he's coming. Now this woman had nothing left to hide at this moment. She clearly is aware of the teachings of the law, that one would come. She's already demonstrated she's aware of the Messiah. She's very clear of the Old Testament teachings. So her lifestyle clearly is not reflecting the obedience of the law, but she's theologically at least aware of it. And at this moment, God has revealed that her life is a mess. She is definitely not obeying the Mosaic law. Her theology is a mess. Everything that she's trusted and believed in is completely wrong. And all of a sudden she goes, I've heard about someone like you. I love what Jesus says. Verse 26. I who speak to you am He. This is the one occasion When Jesus voluntarily declares his Messiahship and he does it to a woman who has completely destroyed her life not to a public crowd. He doesn't show up on the Sea of Galilee where there's 5,000 people there. He doesn't even say this to them. This is to this woman who is completely broken theologically and her life. Now I believe from the story it is at, the very mo- at this very moment the woman believed that Jesus is the Messiah. The moment he spoke this, she believed. What she does next is what makes preaching the gospel such a miracle. Look at verse 27. Jesus then, just then his disciples come, came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek? Or, why are you talking with her? You can imagine, she sees them approaching. She, the interaction's coming to an end, and Jesus says to her, "I'm your savior. I'm your Messiah." And we know that she embraces him as savior because the town comes back and says, "He is the savior of the world," and they come to that conclusion based on her testimony. So. As she runs away, John makes mention of one small detail that I find helpful and fascinating. He mentions that she leaves the water jar behind. Read verse 28. So the woman left her water jar. and So get the sequence here. I've heard that there's someone coming talking like you. And he's been called the Messiah. And Jesus goes, it's me. You know what she does next? She just leaves. She just leaves. And she leaves her water jar, the symbol here. Come and see, verse 29, who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And this isn't, hey, I think I may have found the Christ. The excitement of this woman draws the crowd of the town. They went out of the town and were coming to Him. <clears throat> I think John put this in the story specifically that the woman left the water part, for us to notice. the, the, The reason she came middle of the day, disgraced, to get water, she has the interaction with Jesus, she leaves what she came for, leaving with living water. And not only that, this is what's fascinating about this story. She comes in absolute disgrace and humility, trying to avoid people because of her life. She... Gets living water. What does she do? She runs towards the people she's avoiding. She runs towards them. And says, I met a guy who told everything about me. Which is kind of an exaggeration because he really didn't. But just the important parts. He knows everything about me. And she convinces him to come out and see him. She no longer cares what people think of her. She has living Water. She has eternal life. And she's so moved by what she has received. She doesn't care what anybody thinks anymore. She just wants them to meet who she met. And if he does this to me, who else can he do this for? Now, she was so convincing. She had a large number of people. We don't know how large, but it's large enough for them to mention the crowd that came. Next week we're going to look at the interaction between Jesus and His disciples as it relates to this woman in evangelism. But I want us to take special notice of Jesus' solution to her problem. He sees her problem, and what He offers her is eternal life. Jesus didn't offer her marital advice Follow me and I will make your marriage brighter. Jesus offered to fill the void of her soul. What she was trying to fill with these relationships could not be... The moment she's filled, what happens to her guilt? What happens to her shame? Gone. 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 He says to her, believe in me and I will never abandon you. I will never leave you. You will never thirst again. You will never be alone again. You will never have the spiritual need. She'd been abandoned or she abandoned five times and was attempting to do it a sixth time. So this woman was well aware of the teachings of the Old Testament. She knew that the Messiah was going to bring this hope and the moment she meets it, she believes. Now, Our city, I think, is full of people like this. They're very aware of the message of the gospel. And they're even, they like to admit that they're right. Yeah, I know, it's Jesus by faith alone. Yeah, Jesus died on the cross. But yet, the way they approach Jesus is they hide behind the theology to hide what the real problem with their life is. So they only approach him as one who can provide solutions to their temporal problems. Fix me, Jesus. Make me better. Take away my addiction so I don't have to embarrass myself anymore. So I don't have to live in secret. When I was working in college ministry, I, I would ask that question. Anyone who come to my office and they were struggling with some habitual addiction. Why do you want to get rid of it? which they are always puzzled like, because it's wrong. (laughs) I understand that. But why? You're asking me to give you Jesus so you can stop this, but you don't understand you need Jesus for something far greater than this problem you have right now. And if you were to approach Jesus that way, this problem would be solved. But you don't approach Jesus that way. You approach him as the temporal fixer. So what caused her to finally stop this futile attempt a covering her sins? Jesus as Savior. Jesus as Messiah. Verse 42, just in preparation for next week, they said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves. They went and heard the message from Jesus themselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. I love that phrase. This is not indeed the, the, the Messiah who's going to usher in this amazing kingdom and fix our captivity and fix our need for hunger and fix our marriages and fix all the problems of our, of our culture. He's saving the world. They got the point. They got the point. We cannot as a church offer Jesus as the fix for the problems of this world. I think it's misleading. Jesus did not come so that we could have better marriages or a better job or a better life that's not why he came now is it the result i absolutely think my marriage is better because of jesus but that's not why he saved me i absolutely think i have more joy in life and satisfaction in life but that's not why he came what did he, jesus tells us why he came i've come to seek and to save that which is lost she was lost you can't get more lost than she is she's she was morally, physically, and spiritually lost, confused. So Jesus didn't fix your problems. And I hope that no one in this room ever believes or offers Christianity to someone. And we do. We all have neighbors. We all have family members. We have friends who so their lives are messed up. And they're probably hiding it from you. And when it's exposed, don't go there and say, well, you should come to our church because everyone's marriage here is awesome. Everyone's life here has been fixed by Jesus. You know, the Mormon religion and other religions prey on people with broken lives, offer them structure and morality, even money to fix their lives. And then all of a sudden it's like, wow, look what this religion did for me. But they still live in darkness. They actually haven't found Jesus. But they're convinced that they have. We need a healer of the soul, not medication to make us feel better. So every week, we have an opportunity to do what Jesus has done here. When we come across people in our daily lives, we need to remind ourselves that we hold the living water. I get it. It is terrifying to be rejected and made fun of. It's even more terrifying to tell someone they're wrong. Anybody else here don't like to tell people they're wrong? I mean, my kids tell me all the time you're wrong. That's my kids. But a stranger? Who likes to tell a stranger they're wrong? Unless you have a debate of nature by nature. But it, no one does. But if you're going to share the message of Jesus Christ, you're going to have to tell people, um, actually, Jesus didn't die on the cross so that you could be happy. He died on the cross to make the Father happy and not mad at you. And the only way to, to receive that joy and forgiveness... Is through faith. So we must offer Jesus as the only solution to their soul, not to the need of their life. So I am convinced that women's ministry and men's Bible study, women's Bible study, home fellowship groups, these are amazing opportunities to bring people into our context and to slowly show them that their need is not to improve their life, but their need is a savior. And I think the only way that can happen is if we have to take the time to have these conversations. Now, I don't believe John wrote that in there to say, you know, when you go get a soda at Seven Eleven, stop and tell someone, hey, do you know how to get living soda forever? That's not why that's in there. But he does say, listen, the harvest, it's so ready. And he's trying to get his disciples to understand it's time to get to work. We're going to talk about that next week. Let's pray. Father, we prepare to come to the table. I just ask that we would embrace this memory that we are supposed to have. This feasting on your blood and on your body. As we remind ourselves that it's faith in the work of Christ on our behalf. Not anything that we've done. And we don't come to you today so that our lives can be improved and better. We come to you today because you are the only one that sustains us. So as a church, Father, we come and we fall on you and embrace you. In Jesus' name, amen.